We're in uh, Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36 today. So why don't you turn there. That song will come back to visit us toward the end. Let's hear from God's Word. Now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Come now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dotham. Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then, they will say, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he, might re- that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that 
This was written, as Romans 15 says, for our instruction, that we might endure, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through these Scriptures this morning, and that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. Ever been in the wrong place? At the wrong time? Gracia and Martin were not supposed to be at Dulce Palmas. They were supposed to be somewhere else. But, as Providence would have it, one of their colleagues had a father who passed away. And so their colleague left the Philippines to return to America for his funeral. This meant that Martin had to fill his position in flying to the other missionaries on a different route. And so she decided that since their anniversary was coming up, they would spend a mere 24 hours at this hotel to celebrate their anniversary. It was during those 24 hours that armed men knocked on the door, forced their entry, and took them captive. From our perspective, wrong place wrong time. Haven't you been in sometimes the wrong place, wrong time? Maybe you were walking down what looked to be the wrong street at the wrong time and you may have been robbed. Some of you I know have felt like you were at the wrong intersection at the wrong time. When we look at things from the human perspective, that's what it looks like. When we look at Joseph's life, that's what it looks like. But I submit to you that he was not at the wrong place at the wrong time. Let us see providence, how God works in history to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people through the life of Joseph, even this morning. The big idea is that man's deceitful treachery cannot destroy the promises of God. We have to keep in mind what we looked at last week with the reality that God had given Joseph dreams. He had laid out his plan, so to speak, for Joseph, that he was going to be the leader of God's people for that generation. That he was the one that God was going to use to deliver his people. But God did not tell Joseph or his brothers or his father the whole story, which is what we begin today, is the rest of the story. God makes promises in order to promote faithfulness. We need to keep this in mind as we look at the text this morning. The timing in this text is tricky. The first part that we looked at last week seems to take place before Rachel's death because it refers to her and it refers to Joseph himself as the son of his old age. And yet this text seems to take place after the death of Rachel because they're already in Hebron. So we're not sure of all of this. There could be a time gap between the first part of this chapter and the second part of this chapter. We're uncertain. We can't be dogmatic. But this we can be certain of that one of the themes that we find in Scripture is that God's promises are meant to shape our behavior. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 states, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
If we were to look at this, this passage of Scripture in light of what we did with our confession of faith, we would see that essentially Paul is saying to them, you have been justified, you have been adopted, which is why he calls them beloved. Since you have these promises, we have these promises, we are to purify ourselves. This process of sanctification, may it take place, and may it bring holiness in us, may it bring to this to completion in the fear of God. And so we are to serve God out of faith. By having received these promises, we moved forward in our sanctification by God's grace, The fear that is referred to here is because we have the beloved, that idea that is there. It is the fear of a son towards his father. It is not the fear of a man towards his enemy. And this is a holy fear. This is a good fear. And that's the fear that moves us forward in sanctification. And so these are promises of grace. These are not the reward of works that that Joseph has even here. He's not getting these promises of God because he's faithful. He's getting these promises of God so that he will become faithful. And we see from what takes place at the very beginning of this chapter that it's doing its work. It's having the proper response in his life. We see that Joseph has received this promise, and he's acting as if it would happen. We do not see a lazy, entitled person who can't be bothered. He's not part of the moocher class. But what we see evident here is his great faithfulness. His father approaches him and says, You know, remember, I've sent your brothers to pasture the flocks in Shechem, and I want you to go check on them and tell me whether or not it goes well with them and the flocks. In other words, are your brothers prospering? Are your brothers being obedient? Are the flocks prospering under their care? I want to know how it goes with them. And so he entrusts Joseph to go, to see, to return, and report. And Joseph discharges the duty. Let's keep this in mind. Hebron to Shechem is 50 miles. This is not a one-hour car ride. This is a multiple-day journey on foot or on camel. He has to be faithful in order to discharge his responsibility. And something happens when he gets to Shechem. Now, remember Shechem. If this is, and I think it is, after the death of Rachel, it's also after the slaughter of Shechem. He would not be a welcome person alone in Shechem or the outskirts of Shechem. So he shows up. His brothers are not there. And so the text is interesting. It says he's wandering. It's like he's like someone who's sort of lost his way at that particular point in time. What would faithfulness do? He could, he could conceivably go back and just tell his dad, they weren't there, didn't find them. Or he can try and find his brothers, see how, they're go- how they are doing, and then return to his father. And so there we have, in the providence of God, a man comes along who finds him wandering and asks him what he's looking for. And it would have it that this man knows exactly where his brothers are. And so he's approached not just by a random man, but he's, he's approached by the right person at the right time, even though this is going to lead 
to a very unfortunate set of circumstances for Joseph. God is at work to bring Joseph to a particular place at a particular time. He travels an extra 13 to 15 miles to find his brothers because he is faithful and obedient to his father. Now there's something here that I don't want us to overlook. And that is the reality that we see in Joseph that character and integrity are possible in this life. Sometimes we as Calvinists can, can uh, you know, reckon with the doctrine of depravity and we, we tend to just get very negative and think that, well, you know, you know, we just stink, man. We're just big sinners. And we, don't, we don't recognize that, that God intends for us to actually make progress in our sanctification. He gives us the Spirit precisely so it will produce that fruit in our lives. He gives us the Spirit that we might experience the the power of the resurrection, that we might live new lives, different lives. That is possible by faith in Christ as we cling to the promises. And so God is seeking to make us trusting children who take on more responsibility in our lives, not people who are stuck. I guess that's really the issue for us. Matt Chandler has, has said before, it's okay if you're a mess, but it's not okay if you stay a mess. That's what we find in Scripture. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to, you know, be struggling with sin, but it's not okay to remain there precisely because we have the Holy Spirit, which is at work in our lives to change us, reshape us, to make us more like Christ, as we looked at from the Westminster Confession with regard to sanctification. And so our salvation comes with promises that are meant to promote our godliness and faithfulness. The rest of this text deals mostly with his brother's and his father. And secondly, we see that man's treachery cannot threaten God's promises. Now, we see here, first of all, we have to keep this in mind, that Joseph's dreams were a trial to his brothers. Joseph's exaltation above them, and therefore their service toward him, they all bowed down to him, that was a trial to them. And they could either be purified through that trial, or they could resist that, and it could explode in sin. Which do you think happened? It was an occasion for them to express the sin that was already in their hearts. We see, uh, we're meant to be reminded a little bit of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. His brothers are angry because he has found favor in the sight of God that they have not found. 
And they are angry with him. They are angry with God. Sin is crouching at their door. They could resist that. Or they could give way to that. And what we see is that they give way to it. It Sin masters them. It no longer crouches, but it has pounced upon them and what takes place. The approach of their brother, because of their anger, was not a welcome sight. I can imagine that from the distance, they have noticed the tunic that he's wearing. They see that sign that they hate so much, that he is the one who shall rule over them. And they begin to conspire. It says they conspired against him, not just to overthrow him, but to kill him. They don't just want Joseph gone. They want Joseph dead. This text talks about wild devouring beasts, but it looks in the wrong place. The wild devouring beasts are his own brothers. The ones who are meant to have his back become the ones that put the knife in his back, who betray him. Why are they doing this? Why do they want him gone? It goes back to this, the idea of the dreams. That's exactly where Moses brings us, and there's something a little bit lost in translation. They say, it's just usually the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. But in the Hebrew, it says the dream master. It uses that word before, right before dream for Lord, Baal. Lord or master. They're mocking him. Here comes the master, the Lord of the dreams. We'll see how those dreams turn out, won't we? Let's get rid of him. And so they do this because they are filled with envy. They are filled with hatred. And they want him gone. That reminded me a lot of the priests and the scribes in the day of Jesus, and including the work of Judas and that whole thing. They turn against him. They mock him. And what happens is they cannot see the very deliverance of Israel is at stake. What they don't know is that right now they are seeking to kill the one man who in the future can save them. They don't know what's going to take place in the future. And they don't, in their anger and their hatred, understand how important that person is. They don't realize that God has appointed him for a special and holy task and they want to destroy him because of the dreams. And here we have Reuben. Reuben is interesting. Remember what happened at Shechem? Reuben was one of the ones who led the way in that in destroying the Shechemites. He was so bold when it came to the Shechemites, and yet here we see him sort of being very cautious. His plan is to get his brothers not to kill him, precisely so he can rescue Joseph and restore him to his father. What's going on here in that is most likely that that Reuben is trying to get in back into his father's good graces after the, the affair with the concubine. He's trying to restore his place in the family. He thinks that if he can save Joseph, that his father will somehow restore him to glory. And yet we see the feeble leadership of Reuben, why he's really not set, qualified 
an appropriate firstborn who will lead Israel into the future. But he does convince them to shed no blood. And so they throw Joseph alive into the pit. The word that's used can refer to, among other things, a cistern. And the archaeologists have found a number of cisterns in that region, and what they are is a hole that is anywhere from 6 to 25 feet deep, carved out of rock. And what happened with the cisterns is usually it's wide on the bottom, and it comes, it curves up like a bottleneck at the top. So in other words, there's no way out. Unless he has rock climbing gear, there's no way he can scale that part of the cistern. He needs someone to deliver him by a rope to get him out of there. So Joseph is as good as dead. Although they have not laid hands upon him, although they have not slain him, they have not shed his blood, he's as good as dead because he'll starve to death or die of thirst in the cistern. While he was given into their hands, God actually had other plans for Joseph. Again, this study in providence. I'm reminded of Paul. I was reading Romans, finished up Romans, 15, Romans this week, and in Romans 15, what we find is Paul reminding the Roman church that he's on his way. That his plan, okay, Paul's plan, is that on the way to Spain or Gaul, he's going to stop in Rome, he's going to encourage them, but he reminds them, first I must go into Jerusalem. Okay, we see confirmation of this in First and Second Corinthians. He's going to pick up the collection that is meant for the Jews that are in Jerusalem who have been affected by the famine. He's going to bring, them, bring that there, and then after that he's going to go to Spain via Rome. But what does he say to them? He also says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God by my, on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And so Paul makes a prayer request to the Romans before he departs from, uh, for Judea saying, Pray that God would deliver me because I know there are unbelievers there who want me dead. It wasn't quite answered like Paul thought. Paul would get to Rome, but not as a free man and not on his way to Spain. He would be delivered from the unbelievers who were in Judea, but he was delivered into the hands of the Romans who would bring him, after many years of imprisonment, to Rome, where he would die. So, sometimes the promise of God doesn't turn out the way we think it's going to, but it still turns out according to God's will and God's purpose. And so we have the brothers talking about the wild animal that devours their brother. That's their plan. That's what they're going to tell their dad as they sit down to eat. The, wild, the real wild beasts sitting and eating. And while they're sitting and eating, here comes a caravan, a group of Midianites. And Judah, who will emerge as the, the, the real leader of the remaining brothers, we'll get to his story next week, um, has an idea. We can sell them and make money. 
But if we just leave them in the pit, we don't get anything out of this. We can get some money for our brother. Now, of course, it was illegal, even in that time, to kidnap someone and sell them like that. And yet, they still get the price for a slave of his age. Between the ages of 5 and 20, the price for a slave in Israel would be 20 shekels of silver. For an older slave, it was 30, which is what Judas got paid for Jesus. Okay? They sell him into slavery. I think back of the Barnums and their story. The, the men who were armed and who broke into their hotel room and took them hostage, took them hostage because they were Americans, not because they were missionaries. And they took them hostage precisely so they could get a ransom for them. They wanted money. And so this group of Islamic militants traveled around the countryside of the Philippines, hiding from the armed services, the army of the Philippines, dragging along the Barnums and other hostages that they want money for, for over a year and a half. Dragged around the countryside. Because from a human perspective, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But one day... This slave, who's about to be sold into Egypt, is the one who would save Israel from its famine. That would save Egypt from the famine. He points us, of course, to Christ, who was betrayed by his brothers and would deliver Israel from something far greater, their bondage to sin. This is God's means to God's end, this process, this unpleasantry, this hardship. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, that when you're under trial, that each of us need to return to the promises of God in Christ. Because what happens when we're in trial is that we lose sense of where we are. It's kind of like me around here. It's one, Amy always laughs because someone will ask me, well, where's the church? And I'll like, oh, it's over there, when really it's over there. <laughs> I have no sense of direction apparently in Tucson. I don't know if it's the hills or what it is, but I can't point out the proper direction to save my life. When we're in affliction, whether it's unemployment, whether it's the death of a loved one or a child that's missing, whether it's a separation for an extended period of time from the one that you love, whether your kids are in trouble, any of those things, disease, we lose our bearings. It's like we've got, we're, we're in the parachute and getting tossed up and down and, or, or you know those games you play in youth group you know, where you put your head on the bat and you kind of go like this and you get dizzy and you don't know where. You lose your equilibrium. Promises of Christ are like true north. It's like the compass that reorients us to spiritual and therefore um, eternal realities. We need to return to the promises of God to regain our equilibrium in the midst of trial and hardship, in the midst of our sadness in the midst of our fear, 
We need to return to them to regain our sense of who God is and what he has promised to do. We must return to our true north. Hardship tempts us to think that God's promises have failed, but they are just a means to his end to fulfill those promises. The third part of this is that man's deceit can't destroy God-given identity. In a sense, looking at adoption, our new status through justification and adoption. The damage they do to Joseph is more than physical damage. They seek to destroy his very own self-identity. What did they do? They stripped him of his robe. Okay, This is a symbol of his identity, of who he is in the family. They take that from him. And they sell him into slavery. Now think about that for just a moment. What it would be like to go from the privileged son in your family to lower than nobody as a slave. And it wasn't some other tribe that came by and captured you. It was your own brothers who did it. His sense of identity would be destroyed. I think um, Gracia Barnum mentions this a little bit in her book um, that I'm reading right now. You know, just think of that. We're missionaries. Now we're not. (laughs) We're captives. We've gone from being a pilot to trying to survive on what little scraps we get. Their whole sense of identity shifts. You know, for those of you who like movies, Gladiator. He goes, Max, he goes from the favored general of the emperor to being a slave at a gladiator school where no one cares who he is, what he's done. He had thousands of men follow him into the face of death, and now no one cares who he is. And that, that's Joseph's existence. No one in Egypt cares that he's Joseph's son, that he's loved by his father, that he's the privileged one. The Muslim militants didn't care that the Barnums were missionaries who were loved by their heavenly father. It didn't matter. It strikes at the core of who they think they are, and that's what trials do. We lose our sense of identity. We lose our sense of self in the midst of these things. They rob Joseph of everything. And what they do is they supplant it with a lie. They send the tunic back, covered in goat's blood, to their father. And again, note the irony. How is it that he, Jacob, deceived his own father? Two dead goats. The very same thing is being used to deceive him about his son. I heard this on a, recently, and it stuck with me. Worse than telling a lie is spending your whole life staying true 
to a lie. His brothers don't just have to sell it for one moment because it's not a random person that they meet. This lie is for their father. They have to stay true to that lie the rest of their father's life. Decades. They have to maintain the deception. They know he's alive, but they have to act like he's dead. Sold to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar. Notice here what happens. He's placed very strategically until the right time comes. He could have been sold to just anybody in Egypt, but he ends up in the right place for the future. Now, keep this in mind. He's a slave. His circumstances are horrible. But he's strategically at the right place he needs to be. Our circumstances can be incredibly difficult, almost too much to bear, but we are in the right place for where God wants us to end up at the end. It's not a mistake. It's not Satan. He doesn't have the power to do that. Okay? It's not some cosmic accident. We're not existentialists like Camus and believe in the absurdity of life. We believe in providence. And that is the moment when you need to return to providence. That you are where you are. You are experiencing what you are experiencing because of the loving, holy, wise counsel of the eternal God. That's our hope. Slavery still happens today. And those enslaved continue to lose their dignity. They continue to lose their identity to their oppressors. We see this taking place when Satan and the religious leaders assaulted Christ's identity. What takes place when Jesus is in the wilderness? If you are the Son of God, he repeats to him, he's trying to attack his identity. He's trying to get him to doubt the reality of who he is. And Satan uses the same trick on us when we are, are you really God's child? Are you really adopted by him? How would you end up in this mess if you were? Yesterday I watched Kung Fu Panda 2 with the kids, which is amusing because we never saw Kung Fu Panda 1. Um, But I saw in one of the characters, uh, Shen, the evil son, Uh, he was a peacock, he was trying to take over all of China, the words of Satan. Because he continues to say to Poe, who was adopted, he says, your parents hated you. He doesn't tell them, I'm the one who killed your parents. (laughs) He says, your parents hated you. He speaks a lie to undermine his identity, to make him weak and powerless in in his own sight. This is what Satan does. That's why we need to return to the Scriptures. Places like 1 Peter 4. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. We need to remember that we're going to share in Christ's sufferings. 
so that we may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Just like Paul in Romans 8, we share in His sufferings and we will share in His glory when it is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, which would be all who are suffering, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. What's Peter saying? Although the whole world wants you to forget who you are, don't forget who you are. Remember whose you are. And continue to act like you're His. And trust yourself there. Your identity is secure. We just sang, God moves in a mysterious way and... and in the past, I've told you I, you, know, I found out more about that song and why it was written, and maybe some of you don't remember what I said, so I'm going to briefly repeat it. William Cooper had a premonition that he was about to lose his sanity again. He struggled with incredible depression, and he sensed that a, a, a horrible episode was going to happen, and so he would remember what he believed he wrote that hymn. So that when he came out on the far end, he would remember what he believed. Most of us aren't hymn writers. But you know what? In addition to the scriptures, some of us need music. To remember who we are in the midst of our hardship. I have have a a go-to album. (laughs) When I'm feeling the weight of my sin or my trials, you know, it's the jars of clay, um, old hymns in a new way kind of thing. Because I need someone to tell me the gospel promises that my heart does not believe at that moment, that my heart is struggling to hold on to. I need someone else to tell me. And so God uses people like that to speak the truth to me that I might go, yes, that's what matters. That's what's important. And so Christ gives us these things to bring us back, to restore that sense of who we are and and confidence in His promises. The, The memory that our identity, as He says, as Paul says in Colossians, is secure because it is hidden with God in Christ. There's no safer place in the whole universe than in Christ. Back to the Barnums as we finish. Martin died in the battle that set her free. But that didn't take away God's promise. He still had God's promise of eternal life. He still had God's promise of glorification. He still is who he always was and was intended to be. She lost her husband, and yet, while her identity shifted in an earthly sense, she still belonged to Christ. She still was a part of Christ's church. She still was a missionary, though in a different sense. Although they found themselves, from a perspective, in the wrong place at the wrong time, it was God's means to do mighty things amongst his people. It's nothing any of us would have chosen to go through, and yet God used it 
to do mighty things amongst his people. That's what we see with Joseph. That's what we see even more incredibly in the life of Jesus. That's what we see in the life of Paul. And that's what God does in your life. So we can think we're in the wrong place at the wrong time when affliction enters our lives. We lose our sense of hope. We lose our sense of identity. We lose our sense of purpose. But that is living by sight, not by faith. Faith in the resurrected one. And so the stories of Joseph, Paul, and especially Jesus point us to a God who uses those times of hardship to accomplish his far greater purposes. His agenda is far superior than ours. His is salvation, ours, comfort, safety. He can be trusted to keep his promises. And so when we're in that place, will we choose to trust even though we don't understand, or are we going to surrender to bitterness and despair? That's really where we are. That's really, I think, part of what this text calls forth from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we believe in a Savior who did not give in to despair. That he knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly where he was going, just as it talks about in in John 13. And because of all of that, because he knew his time had come, he chose to serve his disciples and prepare them for his departure. A departure that they, just like us, we, we, we don't understand how it's better for us, and yet Jesus said, it is better for you that I go. So many of the things you do, Father, we, we confess that we don't understand how it's better. Help us to trust you in that hard place, in that difficult time, to know that it is better for us to experience this. And instruct us in the weeks to come, because this is a story that ain't done yet. And we'll see more of all of this in the weeks to come. And so create in us ready and willing hearts that are able to listen to this because the flesh resists it. And our guard goes up. So have mercy on us and give us ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.